Anybody who thinks Jesus is some pale white guy who is passive in Metro doesn't understand who Jesus of the Bible was. He was a man's man. He was a carpenter. He, I bet he had forms so stinking big you couldn't, couldn't put both hands around. Okay? And he went in there, and he turned over tables. He turned over chairs. And it says that no one even challenged him. Why? Because he had authority given by God. He was cleaning house. He didn't worry about taking names. He was cleaning house. He was taking care of business. This is the weekly podcast from Spotswood at Ladysmith in Caroline County, Virginia, USA. Rick Nicely is the lead pastor. If you will, Luke 19, uh, we're going to read verses 28 through 48. And then we're going to just step through that verse by verse as we talk about God's Word. Follow with me, Luke 19, verses 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called the Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who, went, uh, those who, were, those who were sent went away and found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode uh, along, they spread their cloaks on the, ground, on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, meaning Jesus. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. My big idea today is this. God's sovereign mission for Jesus was carried out with precise authority to right what was wrong by being our chosen sacrificial lamb. 
God's sovereign mission for Jesus was carried out with precise authority to right what was wrong by being our chosen sacrificial lamb. As we see in verse 28 and 29, it says this, And when he said to these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he withdrew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount they call the Olivet, or Olives is another word they use for that mount. If you imagine, um, imagine with me, you're, you're looking at a map on a wall, and there's a city, Jerusalem, maybe shaped a little bit like a square or, or kind of an oblong square. And to the right of that or to the east of that is the Mount of Olives. It's on a peak, okay, and overlooks the city. I got to go there in 2011. It's gorgeous. And just on the, the back side, if you will, on the east side of that range, there's uh, Bethany down kind of the slope a little bit of it. And then Bethpage, just kind of the northeast of that area. And this is where Jesus was coming through. And this is a familiar place for Jesus because this is where his friend Lazarus lived. And Mary and Martha. And we know Jesus performed uh, what up to this point was his greatest miracle was raising Lazarus from the dead, right? It was a place of comfort for him, a place he knew well, a place that he always took refuge in because of the, the friends that he had there and the great comfort that he had there. And we also see that the Mount of Olives is kind of mentioned three times. Um, very important because what we're doing is we're entering what many is known as in the scriptures as Passion Week. This is basically going to be the last, we're going to be spending the last three or four weeks on the basically, basically the last week of Jesus' life and how this all unfolded um, through God's sovereignty in his hand. And so we see this mentioned several times. One is this idea of the triumphant entry, which we're going to see this morning. And then also what was known as the, the Olivet Discourse, really talking about the end times they were asking him when these times would happen. And Jesus unfolds many of those things. And then we also see this picture of him on the Mount of Olives when he's betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And so we see this famous place, the Mount of Olives, is a very important role in the history of Israel and the history of, of Jesus' life, especially around the Passion Week. And so we see this, and Jesus arrives at Bethany on the preceding Saturday, which with the Passover coming six days later on a Thursday evening through the Friday sunset. So the way the Jewish days end, uh, started was at the end of sunset would start another day. And so basically what, what you had was from through Thursday evening through the sunset of the next day was the full day, and that was the Passover on Friday, Thursday night through Friday. And so on the next day, Jesus attended a dinner in his honor after he arrived here. And that was at the home of Simon the leopard. And we don't see that in this text, but we see it in another text in Matthew that when he was at this dinner, there was a woman who anointed his feet with oil. She couldn't stop crying. She, she, she bathed him with this oil because she took this expensive um, perfume and, and just lavished Jesus. And we know it was a picture of beginning to show the picture of what was going to happen to Jesus, that 
eventually he was going to die on the cross. And um, in Jesus, we, we know in that story that many, of course, um, told Jesus, why are you allowing this sinner to touch you? And why are you allowing them to waste this money on you? And he basically said the, the Savior is only going to be here for a while. She's chosen what's his best. And so we see this beautiful picture of that. And then the triumphant, triumphant entry took place on Monday. And so we see this. Uh, the thing I want you to understand as you, as you walk through this Passion Week, as we walk through this Passion Week together, I want you to be reminded of this. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. Uh, we, we think many times that God is slow and he, he doesn't respond. But I want you to know that God's timing is perfect. And everything he does, and we see this unfolding in the life of Christ this Passion Week. Verse 30 and 31 goes on to say this, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Jesus gives them play-by-play instructions. I mean, he, he just says, here it is. Here's the map. Here's, here's, I don't know if any of you are list people. I'm a list person. Here it is. You remember the, uh, one of the instructions I know when I did a speech class years and years ago? I remember they said, hey, write instructions that no one has ever fixed a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? No one's ever fixed it in their whole life. They don't even know what peanut butter and jelly is. They don't know what bread is. Do a, do a strict step-by-step step step instructions of what that looks like, and right? And of course, people admit so many things. They admit like, you know, the fork or, or the spoon or, or the, the, the uh, knife, whatever you're going to use to spread the thing with. They, they, they admit um, opening the jar, right? But here Jesus gives them clear instructions. This is what you need to do. You need to go to this place, grab this colt, it's tied to this place, and then if anyone says anything, this is what you say. I mean, perfect, clear instructions. And I think this reminds us that Jesus' voice is very clear. Jesus' voice is very clear. You know, uh, John 10 says this, my sheep know my voice. They listen to me. And I give them eternal life. And I think when you come to the Father through humility and repentance and give your life to Christ, the voice of God becomes very clear. Obviously, he speaks through his word. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks to us through different things, even some people that God uses in our lives. But God's voice is, Jesus' voice becomes clear in our life as we begin to walk to him uh, I've never been around a shepherd before, but I understand a shepherd, multiple shepherds can bring all their flocks to a watering hall at one moment. And at that moment, when the shepherds realize time is up, they begin to walk. And all they do is call their sheep. Some of them may have a call, some may use words, but those sheep know the shepherd's voice. And I think when we give our life to Christ, the voice of Christ becomes very clear in our lives. And then verse 
uh, 32 through 34, it says this. So, they, so those who were, uh, were sent went in a way and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. <laughs> I've never, I, I don't know what it would be like to have this experience. But imagine... Jesus tells you to go down the street. I mean, imagine he tells you to go down the street. We need to get a ride. So I'm going to go down to the Ford dealership, uh, go, go into the office, grab the keys to the F-250 out there, the diesel, and just if anybody asks you, just tell them the master's in need of it, the Lord's in need of it. And they just say, okay, and you get in the truck and go. I mean, this is, imagine what it would be like for these guys. It's almost like these ninja skills. Like they just, I mean, they just say, the Lord has need of it. Okay, sure, no problem. You have it, okay? I mean, this must have been an awesome experience for these guys to, to walk in obedience to what Jesus said, but did it such a way that it was just like, it was the coolest thing ever, right? I mean, he just, he told them what to do, and they did it. They followed his instructions. It says, listen, a reminder is this. If we listen to Jesus, listen, we will be in the center of God's will. If we listen to Jesus, we'll be in the center of God's will. I remember someone asking John Piper, um, asking him this question one time. He, he lived in a part of the neighborhood and uh, in his city that wasn't considered um, the safest. And he did that because he really wanted to minister to people in that neighborhood. And they said, do you feel... Do you feel safe? Why, why would you do that? Why would you put your kids, why would you put your wife in those circumstances? And he said, the safest place that I can be is in the center of God's will, my life. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't dangerous because he is dangerous. When you follow Jesus, it's dangerous. But the great thing is Jesus is good. And so even when Jesus will put you in those times where it may seem dangerous from a human point of view, you are in, if you will, the safest place to be. Not from human terms, but from God terms. Because being in the center of God's will is the safest place, right? Paul says, the die is game, but the live is Christ, right? And so understanding that being in the center of God's will means we have to follow, and we have to listen, and we have to obey. So that is the best place to be. Verse 35 says this. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on their colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road. And as they were drawn near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen. I want you to imagine this is the scene. Mount of Olives is this peak. It overlooks the city of Jerusalem. The temple mount is there. It has four, four walls. It's going to be, be looking over to the eastern wall okay, of the temple. But Jesus on his cult comes from the Bethany uh, area. And then as he rides, he begins to ride up on this cult 
and begins to crest this view as he begins to crest the, the Mount of Olives, this great crowd begins to rejoice and praise God for what's happening. I've never been in that experience where maybe you, you won a, a game and people put you up on the shoulders and they carry you out, right? And there's a great crowd. I, I can only imagine almost like maybe today a, a big giant football game and the underdogs win and they, the, 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 the students in the crowd get so excited, they tear down the goalpost, right? They have the collapsible ones now, so it's not even fun. But, it, you know, it's, it, you get in there and you, you pull them down and there's just this great spontaneous movement and there's great excitement. And this is what I can imagine is happening with Jesus as he begins to crest this hill. He sees Jerusalem. He sees the city of God, if you will. And see, all the, all the lodging places were taken. And there's an estimate, they say estimated somewhere around 2 million people would have been in and around Jerusalem. So obviously they didn't have room for that many people in these lodges. So what would happen was basically for a two-mile radius around, which is about the distance of what uh, Beth Page and Bethany were, about two miles from the city of Jerusalem. Now you say two miles, that doesn't seem a lot. But anybody who's been to um, Israel knows two miles is not like Kansas. It's not flat, all right? It is up, I'm sorry, it is up and it is down, okay? It is up and it is down. It is straight up and straight down. And that's what uh, the Valley of Kidron is right between uh, the city and Mount of Olives. And it literally is. It's straight down and it's straight up, okay? And so this is what you imagine. Again, think about maybe pictures you've seen where they've set up these places in Syria uh, to, to house refugees or maybe places in Europe and there's all you see is miles and miles of tent cities, okay, around. This is what it would have been like around Jerusalem in this day, in this moment, because they're all coming from all different parts of the surrounding area to celebrate Passover, right? So somewhere between a million to two million people in these tent cities. And again, two miles around. And this triumphant entry was on Monday and really, it's, it's crazy. Again, we'll, we'll unpack this the next couple of weeks, but you'll see that just as they did the Passover, there were certain criteria that certain things had to happen on certain days for the Passover feast. This is another significant, that Jesus came in on Monday, okay, and comes from the law's requirement that the Passover lamb be selected on the 10th day of the first month in Nisan and sacrificed on the 14th day. So he comes in. Listen, I want you to think about this. All the time and all eternity, Jesus was orchestrated at this moment to enter the city of Jerusalem, to be on a cult. And a cult was used, in the, just like in the line of David, was to be brought in as a king. And it was always signifying a victory, signifying a, a new king, king had been anointed. Okay? I want you to think about the significance of this. On this day, that the Passover lamb had to be selected, but it wasn't just a Passover lamb. He was the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And he's riding in on this cult to signify what is going to happen. Of course, 
The crowds don't realize it. Disciples don't even realize it. Even though he keeps preaching and teaching it over and over what must happen, they don't get it. They don't see it. So I want to point out this too. Before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. Revelation 13, 8. Before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. We see all the way back the book of Genesis in Genesis 3.15 where it talks about that when Adam and Eve rebelled really in some ways almost formed a coup against God in that sense that rebelled against how God had given them a garden of yeses only one tree of no and they rebelled and there's a great chasm between God and man and he says listen I know you don't understand this but there's going to be a time where enmity is going to happen between your seed, and the enemy. And even though he's going to bruise his heel, that man, the God-man, is going to crush the head of Satan. And so we see this picture from all the way from Genesis. And here it is unfolding for us in the picture of Jesus. There's some estimate that on this celebration entry that somewhere close to 100,000 people celebrated as he rode along the streets, as he entered into Jerusalem. Think about that. I, I played sports for many years and played in maybe crowds of 15,000, 20,000 at a time, but I can't imagine 100,000 people. I went years ago to a West Virginia game, and I think that day they set a record. It was like 90-some thousand people. It was scary, to be honest, because... It was on these bleachers, and every time people jumped, the whole place, it just felt like it was going to fall. I mean, it just, it just yeah, man, soon, eventually I couldn't wait to get out of there at the end of the game. But uh, they, they, it was just this incredible environment. Imagine what it must have been like for Jesus, again, with all these people around, and then celebrating the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what's amazing is you see in Zechariah 9, um, that in this book of Zechariah, he quotes this picture over 500 years before Jesus came, that he was going to ride on this donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Placing their coats on the ground was really an expression of their eager submission. It was symbolically placing themselves under the feet of their king. And they said this, Blessed is the king. And this king represents God. And they were acknowledging him in a symbolic way as the Messiah. And they said this phrase. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Reminds me a lot of the phrase that the shepherds said, right? They saw the, the angel singing, peace on earth, goodwill to men, praise God in the highest. Is this, this idea that they were celebrating the king of kings has arrived in Tru to Jerusalem. Messiah, what they didn't understand was the Messiah was going to be a suffering sacrifice for sins. See, they had in their mindset that because they were occupied by the Roman government, that, that God was going to send his Messiah to conquer Rome. 
to overthrow Rome and to free them from this slavery. But God understood they had a greater need, and that was the freedom from slave, from sin and death, to overcome and to be reconciled with their creator, God the Father. And so Jesus wasn't coming to overcome or conquer the Roman government. No, he was more worried about their greater need, and that is their need to be forgiven of their sins and a atoning sacrifice for sins. Verses 39 through 40 say this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these things were silent, the very stones would cry out. What he was saying is this. It's not that something's possible, but it's inevitable. The Greek word there, cry out, is, is a very intense word. It, it, it is a guttural word. It's a, it's a word that is used for future judgment. And we know eventually, several decades later in 70 AD, that the, the Roman Empire would literally not leave one rock unturned in that city. And this is where you see, begin to see the contrast. You see the crowd celebrating and excited about what Jesus is doing. And you see Jesus, he, he, he begins to express real guttural sadness and sorrow because he sees the hearts of the people that he knows, one, he's going to be ultimately betrayed by them. The same men and women who said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord are going to scream, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And his heart aches because Israel does not see, his people do not see him for who he is. They think he's going to be coming in to be this conquering king, but he's coming to lay down his life. He is a wounded victor that he is wounded by the sting of death, but he overcomes death, sin, and the grave, and he crushes the serpent head, serpent's head. So we see this. That all, I'll remind you of this, all of creation knows to glorify God. Romans 8, 22 say this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in birth pains of childbirth until now. Isn't it crazy? I was talking to Michelle or maybe the kids the other day about how you don't have to teach a, a cat how to be a cat, right? You don't have to teach a a dog, how to be a dog. You don't have to teach critters how to be what they are, right? They, they just are. God put in them who they are. But for, for man, we, he, the chief and crown of his creation, it's like we don't get it. We, that rebelliousness in our hearts, God has to show us what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be an image bearer of who he is. And so even creation cries out for the glory of God. And in this morning, what a beautiful picture of what that looks like as we see the beautiful colors and the seasons. God, creation knows how to glorify him. And for some reason, we want to rival with God. We want to compete with him. We want to somehow take his place. But we're to reflect the image of God, not to rival with him. And then it goes on to say in verse 41, it says this, 
he drew near and saw the city. Listen to this. And he wept over it. I don't know about you. Has there ever been a time in your life that you've had a real guttural cry? I mean, snot bubbles and, you know, like just can't catch your breath kind of cry. I mean, just one of those. There's been those moments in my life. Some of those have been times of heartache where I've lost a loved one. Um, Some have been times where um, maybe I was broken over my sin. Maybe I hurt someone. Maybe I hurt God. Maybe I hurt myself. There's been other times where God just moves on you in a moment. I remember not many years ago, I was up in Northern Virginia, and we were at a big uh, conference and, uh, for college students and kind of a transition for high school students to college students. And, and when we went there, just, man, the praise of all the people and, and the message. And I remember just getting down on my knees and it was just one of those moments where God was just so real to me. And I just remember weeping. I couldn't stop. And how God was working in my life and moving in my heart. And um, I, I think about this when, when we, we see this picture of Jesus. It's literally the strongest word in the Greek for weeping. It's, it's this idea that he, he felt it in his gut. that he, he, It was almost like an uncontrollable weeping. And, and his weeping was over the people. And see, we, we see all these pictures of who Jesus was. He was, the, he was the one who was going after the lost coin. He was, he was the one who was the, the, the father and the prodigal had left. And while he was still a long ways off, he ran to him. And then we see, we see him as this one who, who cries and weeps over the lostness of his people. He was weeping over their su- superficiality and their hypocrisy and their shallowness and the, their ultimate rejection of him and their ultimate judgment that would come. He was hurting for them. He was longing that they would repent and they would come to him and it broke his heart see the bible tells us in second peter 3 9 says this the lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness but is patient towards you listen not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance this reminds me should remind you that God's desire is to save people. It's God's desire to save you. It's God's desire to rescue you. It's God's desire to fulfill his purpose in your life. This is God's desire, is to rescue you. Verse 42 says this, saying that, you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Had known on this day the things that make for peace. This day literally means not that moment, but all of Jesus' ministry. It means the, the visitation of the God-man. 
It means this day, meaning this season, this moment, these three and a half years where I've been preaching and teaching and telling you about the kingdom of God and asking you to repent and asking you to come to me. And by faith, believe and with humility, repent and come to me. This is what he's saying. You missed it. You missed who I am. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just another rabbi. I am the king of kings, and I am the Lord of lords. And I was sent by my father with a mission. And that mission is to redeem you and to buy you back with my blood. That was a perfect lamb without spot or wrinkle. See, he's not political, a governmental peace, but the peace with God, which requires repentance and faith in Christ alone for the acceptance of God's provision for salvation. It's not something we dream up. It's not something we lean on our own merit, but we trust in God. It's not that we somehow wait to a certain point and then we'll join God because now we feel like we're a little bit more approachable. No, God takes you in all your messiness. We reminded of just a few weeks ago in the middle of the pig's pen and the smell and the muck and the dirtiness and been eating on pig slop. He takes you just as you are. And he's the one who puts a ring on you, a new coat on you, new shoes on you and cleans you up. He, all he requires is repentance and faith in him. This is what God is saying. You missed it. Only, listen, only the gospel can bring us peace. Only the good news. See, what we need to realize is this is a picture. I remember we go all the way back to Luke 4. I know that's been a lot of weeks ago. When you go all the way back to Luke 4, there's a picture that shared with you the why, why Jesus came. And he said this in verse six, uh, 18 and verses chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news, or if you will, the gospel, or euangelion, which is the Greek for that, to poor, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberties to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. And we turn back. Where do we know that from? We know that from Isaiah 52, verses 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who bring good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the kingdom language. Understanding it goes all the way back to that prophecy in Isaiah 52, where it's a picture of the city destroyed. But there's someone who's running, listen, from the Mount of Olives with good news. And it's this ushering in the king. That the word euangelion, the good news, is always represented by anointing of a new king or the great victory. And guess what? He was bringing both. He was the king of kings and he was also providing victory. This is what Jesus is doing for us. Man, I've got a lot of cover in a short time. <laughs> and then he says this. Now they are hidden from your eyes. Willful blindness would become judicial divine blindness. In other words, when people harden their hearts, when God continues to pursue people and pursue, and your heart is hardened, eventually your heart becomes hard, crusted over. And God is saying, I've sealed their blindness. This reminds me of John 
John 1, where it says this, in the beginning of John, John 1, 10 says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his, his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. He had to be rejected. And this is what we see and it goes on to say, the world is not recognizing Jesus. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't recognize Jesus. Verse 44 through 43, it says, days will come upon you. This is this idea of that future judgment. It would be hemmed on in every side. In 70 AD, this is exactly what happened. Do you understand there is a day of reckoning is coming for everyone? So what do I mean by that? There is a point where we will have to stand before God. And you can stand for yourself or you can let the blood of Christ speak for you. But there is going to be a point that we all have to answer. We all are going to be hemmed on in every side. You're not going to be able to talk your way out of it. You're not going to be able to negotiate your way out of it. It's going to be we're all bare before the throne of God and all our weakness and our nakedness and we'll, everything will be displayed. Will you trust yourself? Will you trust the grace of God and the blood of Christ? It goes on to say he entered the temple. Listen, he was on a divine mission. There, I'm going I'm to wrap up with this. There's four realities or four or five realities that show that Jesus is God's king. When he entered the temple, he was on a divine mission. Jesus was declaring that he was not concerned with Israel's relationship to Rome, but with the nation's relationship to God. His ministry always focused on the kingdom of God and true worship. See, what was going on at this time you need to understand was there was a racket going on in the house of God. What was happening is people would come from all over, they knew they had to sacrifice animals, right? They knew they had to sacrifice for the Passover. And what they would do is they'd get there, and there'd be money changers, and there'd be people basically in the house of God, uh, the high priest and his, his father-in-law basically had a racket going on. And it wasn't just them. It had been going on. Okay? And they would reject the, the sacrifice that people had brought on their own only to have to buy a sacrifice there that wasn't meeting the standards, only to make more money off of it, to buy. And then the money changers that were swapping out because they had to pay with a certain currency were charging a tax on the swapping of money. In other words, like Jesus said, he turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves. It was all about making money. It was all about a scam. It was all about profiting off the people and this was what upset. And I'm going to tell you, anybody who thinks Jesus is some pale white guy who is passive in Metro doesn't understand who Jesus of the Bible was. He was a man's man. He was a carpenter. He, I bet he had forms so stinking big he put, couldn't put both hands around. Okay? And he went in there and he turned over tables. He turned over chairs. And it says that no one even challenged him. No one even challenged him. Why? Because he had authority given by God. He was cleaning house. He didn't worry about taking names. He was cleaning house. He was taking care of business. Listen, place, a church should be a place for sick people that want to get well. People that are sick 
and want to be well. People that are lost and want to be found. This is not a country club. This is not some place where we just gather in because our holy huddles and forget that there are lost people that we need to share Jesus with. And we need to bring them. And as we say, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Jesus loves you. He's poured out, he poured out his life for you. And in this picture, we see that he cares about his church. He cares about his house. And not physical, but the body. Us as people, as individuals, we are the body of Christ. We exercise divine authority. Listen, and it says he demonstrated a commitment to Scripture. Just right away, just like as he defeated Satan, it is written. He says, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That comes from Isaiah 56, 7. And then goes on to say, the temple had originally been uh, designated by God to be a place of prayer, sanctuary of worship, a place of communion with God, meditation, penance, confession, praise, along with the suffering of the offerings, I'm sorry, offerings of the sacrifice. But again, they had turned it into a racket, a money-making system. It goes on to say, listen, but then Jesus, as he is, he cleaned house, but then this is what he began to do. He began to teach daily in the temple. I think that's a picture of his divine compassion. His divine compassion. Jesus began to teach in the temple. He began to say, listen, I, I, I know these guys have made it a racket. I'm cleaning house, but I want you to know who I am. I want you to understand about the kingdom of God. And this is just, again, the last couple days that he spends, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he begins to teach in the temple. And this is what we're going to see as he's closing his days out here on earth. One last time, a seeking Savior is proclaiming the gospel of salvation to lost people. And then we go on to see in verses 47b through 48, trying to destroy him. The religious leaders tried to silence him. They wanted to take him out. But all the people were hanging on every word. Listen, he fulfilled God's divine purpose for his life. Do you realize that you have divine purpose as well? Do you know what it is? To abide in Christ, to make disciples, to produce fruit. That's what you're made to do. You're made to be an image bearer of the living God. And until you meet Jesus, you cannot do that. See, he gives you his spirit. And when he gives you his spirit, through salvation, through repentance of sin, through faith in Jesus, now you can become an image bearer of who he is. And now you can produce fruit and make disciples. The same people who say, blessed is the king, again, a few days from now, would be saying, crucify him. Jesus would fulfill God's purpose by dying on Friday as God's chosen sacrificial lamb. Acts 2, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 says this, This man delivered over by a predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This is what eventually is going to happen to Jesus. You're listening to the weekly podcast, from Spotswood at Ladysmith in Caroline County, Virginia, USA. Lead Pastor Rick Nicely will conclude his sermon with the big question coming up. Spotswood at Ladysmith exists to glorify God by advancing His kingdom through obedience to His Great Commission. 
To know more, to find resources, and to interact with us, please visit our website, SpotswoodLS.org. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram, SpotswoodLS. Now here's Rick with the conclusion to this week's sermon. I want to ask you this big question this morning. Do you trust God's plan for salvation for you? Or are you trying to create your own? Do you trust God's plan for salvation through his son Jesus? Listen, I know these sermons, these last days sound very similar. If you look at Jesus' teaching, things sound very similar over and over and over. Why? Because us as humans, we don't get it the first time. We have to hear it over and over and over, right? And all of a sudden, it clicks. The Spirit of God is knocking on your heart. Listen, there's, there's always things that he's drawn us close. He's always wanting to draw us near. Even if you're a believer, he's trying to draw you nearer to him. Because as you draw nearer, you realize more and more in the light of who he is, how much junk you still got in your life that you need to get rid of. And you realize that not everybody in the room's worse than you. You are actually the worst sinner in the room. <laughs> That's what Paul said. As he grew closer and closer to Christ, he realized it wasn't the people that were the worst. He was the worst. So if you do know him, praise God. But he still wants to draw you near. There's things in your life that God continue wants to deal with. There have not put faith in Jesus. Would you put faith in him today? The Bible says you just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Would you just do that? Would you stand? Father, thank you that you are gracious to us. Thank you that you are patient. And just as Jesus came here on earth, he was a seeking Savior, the Spirit of the living God is seeking our hearts this morning. God, would you draw our hearts to you? God, if anyone doesn't know you here, God, that they would put faith in you. They would stop resisting, stop trying to clean themselves up. They can't do it. Only you can do that. Just come as they are. God, there's others that just need to spend time with you, drawing closer to you. God, you would do that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been the weekly podcast from Spotswood at Lady Smith in Caroline County, Virginia, USA. These podcasts are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. You can also find the video version of the podcast on our YouTube channel. Just go to spotswoodls.org and click the YouTube link. Thanks for listening, and God bless you.